welcome to the third episode of Brewing Microservices. Um, my name is Christopher Mickeljohn. I'm a PhD candidate at Carnegie Mellon University, and uh, I study primarily microservices and microservice fault tolerance. And I have a bunch of people here today, and we're going to follow up on our episode on Nimbus, which was about a programming environment for serverless to kind of fix the development experience. So I'm going to let everybody introduce themselves, uh, and we'll start with uh, David. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is David Justo. Uh, I'm an engineer at Microsoft working on Azure Functions, which is our serverless um, product. I should say that, you know, especially since we're talking about serverless, that all the opinions and all the hot takes shared today do not represent my employer, uh, just, just mine and that of my friends here. Um, and yeah, I guess that's, that's all you need to know about me, just a legal disclaimer. Uh, who wants to go next? Uh, Scott, do you want to go? Sure. My name is Scott Lustig Fritchie. I'm a, a staff software engineer at BlockFi at the moment. I've been working on distributed systems uh, programming and support for a couple of decades. Um, and uh, uh, in, a, in another episode with Chris, um, I ranted and raved about how terrible databases are, but um, they also seem to be pretty necessary, but I still haven't changed my mind. They're still terrible. Hey, and I'm David Pollack, otherwise known as DPP. Um, I work at Sneak, a developer-focused cybersecurity company. Um, I've been doing coding since before Chris was born um, <laughs> for money. And uh, That's a good clarification. And I'm sure the lawyers at Sneak are going, oh, I hope he doesn't say anything we're going to be embarrassed by. Um, but I do not speak on behalf of my employer. Cool. Okay. Um, great. So the gang's all here. Um, so Scott, Scott had a, so me and Scott just got back from strange loop and, uh, it was a good time. I gave a talk and, um, on, on my PhD research, which is nice, uh, because, uh, last time I had been at strange loop was like four months before I started my PhD. So that was kind of wild. But, um, the reason I bring this up is because Scott had this like interesting observation, or I guess you overheard something and then you listened to the first podcast and you said, oh, my God. So why don't we start there? Scott, tell us the story. Yeah, well, um, I was listening to the first podcast in your, in your um, new series. Um, and it was about a paper called Nimbus um, that we're also going to be talking about um, today. Um, and uh, I hadn't read the paper. The, the recording was the first that I had heard of, of this um, of the system Nimbus, um, and it just reminded me all of the headaches involved in the iteration of writing some code, putting it up in the cloud, discovering that some configuration is broken, update the configuration, you discover a second thing in the configuration is broken, and then you forgot to set an environment variable, and all these round trips seem to be the same kind of developer experience and feedback cycle of taking a punch card deck or uh, punch paper tape and bringing it to the, the the priests and priestesses who maintained uh, the health and sanity of the mainframe, and you would give it to them, and they would feed it into the machine sometime later for execution, and then your your output would end up on a teletype, or maybe you divert the output to more punch more punch cards or or tape, um, and the round trip could could take minutes to to hours. It just sounded very similar. And it may have been something strange loop in the air. Um, I didn't go to this talk, but it's strange loop 2022. There was a talk by Jack Rusher called Stop Writing Dead Programs. 
And he makes very much the same kind of analogy. And so that is our discussion point, I guess. I just want to say I did watch that talk like literally yesterday night. Uh, and you know, if you're listening to this and you, you haven't seen it, you should absolutely watch it. Uh, just, no, I haven't uh, seen delight, it. Delightful in, in terms of uh, challenging standard you know, programming practices. Okay, we'll have to link it in the show notes. I haven't seen it yet either, but now everybody's got me interested. Um, so I'll tell I'll tell a story quickly about not punch cards but mainframe programming that I think I think DPP will appreciate was when I dropped out of university in 2000. I was going to the University of Rhode Island, and I really just didn't jive with me, and I went to work for a small internet company instead. Um, I I. My parents were very insistent that I not stop school altogether. So I said, okay, I'm going to go work for this internet company, but at night I'll go to night school. And I went to Community College of Rhode Island in uh, Warwick at the night campus. And I took programming there and I took like introduction to the internet. I took introduction to Microsoft Word, which I think it was Word 97 probably. Um, I took introduction to the internet and which they taught us to use the internet's provider services that I worked at, which was kind of humorous. But I was required to do COBOL programming. Uh, and so I wrote COBOL and I submitted it to the CCRI AS400 and waited for my results. So while I can't comment on uh, punch card programming specifically, I do know this uh, idea of having to sit in that stupid, horrible CCRI computer lab submitting code to an AS400, waiting for the results. And, and writing out those sheets, you have to write out those report generator sheets with the X's and the 9's or whatever to describe what you wanted the output of the program to look like. Oh my god, it was RPG and JCL, all this stuff. So, um, yeah, it's not ideal. They were all, I was also taking .NET at the time. It was the first release of .NET. And uh, I remember saying, like, wow, .NET is, is a thing, and I'm also learning COBOL. So, yeah, I mean, it's not ideal. Oh, I, I used to have um, a copy of Colossal Caves Adventure written in Fortran on punch cards. And I remember, you know, editing a program was quite literally punching new cards or, you know, shuff quite, you know, shuffling the deck, shuffling the order of the cards, taking them over to the human who would then load them into the system. And, yeah, it was just a, a hellish process. And, you know, where, where did printf debugging come from? It came from those cycles. And, you know, we, we occasionally have these dalliances with, like, oh, I can debug in my IDE. And then we have, you know, a shift in technology, and all of a sudden, a lot of, you know, the, the value in the shift, like serverless, is huge. But the cost to the humans who are actually building the systems is also huge. And it takes a decade or so to, for things to catch up. You know, for for the you know ease of use stuff to kind of come back to what what we've been taught to expect. All this talk of uh, punch cards and uh, .NET version one is making me realize how much of a baby I am in this room. <laughs> uh, yeah, but let, let's not dive too deeply into that. Um, yeah, I, I am curious to. Um, Further qualify something. So, you know, we, we're talking about these sort of like creating two different times in development, the, 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 the actual feature development process and then the time that it takes for it to deploy in the cloud on serverless and for 
for us to see what really happens. I'm trying to understand, uh, do we feel like this is a problem with serverless in particular, or is this just something that happens in the cloud in general when you're running things outside your premises and you know it's not as easy to just SSH into it and like pick at all the internals? Um, trying to figure it out. Is it really fair to say this is a serverless problem? Personally, I don't think it is a serverless problem. I mean, or we, we've solved the problem um, with containers. So VS Code, you can basically, um, you know, do almost seamlessly do a remote VS Code session in a container. Tilt has made development of, you know, container and Kubernetes or the, the turn the crank cycle much, much quicker. And that, you know, that's on the development side. The other thing that you all talked about with the Nimbus paper was the um, testing phase. And I really don't know what has addressed, you know, kind of if you can't have the whole system, how much do you mock a problem with either serverless or containers? Hmm. I, I, I want to step back for one second and just, uh, I, I think this is related to David's question. The... Um... You said this idea before that, like, you get this new computing environment and then it takes time to build up the tooling and stuff. And uh, David then asked this question about, is it a serverless specific thing? I, I want to decompose that question two ways. So okay. the the ultimate way I want to get to is, is serverless. So the first question I want to ask is, or the first story maybe we can tell or whatnot is, you said this, you, the way you said it was like, this happened, this has happened multiple times. So I'd like you to talk about that a little bit, but, but the place I want to get to is, are we in a different place with serverless because the runtimes are, are proprietary to a company and maybe it's the same and maybe it's not, but maybe we'll start with the first one to lead us there perhaps. Um, yeah, look, we, we saw this with C, C development. And it wasn't until GDB came along, you know, the GNU debugger, that you could really debug C code. And, you know, even debugging C code on Macintosh was pretty much impossible because, you know, you didn't have a supervisor process. You just had, you know, a flat, um, flat process space. Uh, you know, over time, these things evolved. And when Java came along, Java didn't have any good IDs or debuggers, and it took time for the Java debuggers, you know, to really catch up and become visual. Um, I think some of it is driven by dollars. In other words, in order to get more developers onto a particular platform, which the platform vendors like, whether it's, you know, lock in for um, serverless or lock into a language like, you know, or like .NET or Java, yeah, there there's a platform competition, and ultimately the competitors for the platform are going to work work hard to make it easy for the non early adopters to be successful with their platform. So I, I I don't think this is unique to serverless. I think we're just in a different adoption space or a different place in the adoption curve with serverless. That's um yeah. So that's that's really interesting. Um, I didn't think about it that way, and I really, I really. It's really interesting to hear. Um, it, 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 let me ask a question about what you just said. Um, in terms of 
this like idea, you know, with with this competitor thing, right? Whether it's Microsoft building out Visual Studio or Borland or whatever, building out C plus Turbo C plus plus or Turbo Pascal or whatever. You say it's like this kind of competition to see which language wins, right? So I'm wondering. I, I guess I guess we could take this a, a bunch of different ways, but I, I'll just kind of throw some ideas out here. So one would be one question I would have is. Um, how is that different because the platforms are hosted? I guess that would be the serverless specific question. I guess the second question would be around, do we imagine that these companies are going to, do we imagine that the battle will be won in the development experience, right? So Microsoft is already a bit ahead of some of the other cloud providers because they do have integration with Azure, with Visual Studio, right? Where, um, if you're writing a lot of AWS stuff, it's mostly JSON to keep it kind of agnostic and relies on like tooling that comes from the community where GCP, I mean, I I did a bunch of work, academic work with GCP, but I don't even remember what any of that stuff looks like. I think it's also JSON. Um, so I'm just wondering if, you know, I feel like there's a lot more dimensions because when you write serverless programs, you also rely on storage and storage is going to impact what choice you make. If you want Dynamo, if you want whatever, um, storage is going to change something. If you want a particular queuing system, if you want to use S3, that's going to impact your choice, right? So I feel like maybe with the command line, with local development, with C++ and, and Java or whatever, I feel like maybe with those languages, um, there were fewer dimensions, but I don't know. I mean, look, I, I don't think that... I don't think that things have changed that much. You know, the, the semantics of Postgres versus MySQL. Yeah, that, yeah, that was a question in the 2000s. Yeah, it was. I mean, I remember that. It was like Postgres had like transactions <laughs> and MySQL didn't. Uh, Postgres had triggers, MySQL didn't. Postgres was much more, but I mean, back in the day, it was... Postgres was supposed to be like the Oracle replacement that was open source, right? And MySQL was just supposed to be like, give give people an open source SQL that might not be full featured, but gets them using databases. Yeah, but some, so many of our systems were built on MySQL because it had a really, um, it had a much easier adoption curve. So it's much easier to install. It was much easier to get running. You know, the developer had, um, something on their desktop that they could build against really quickly. With Postgres, you know, it was almost like building Linux kernel back in the early 2000s yeah. to get it installed. Um, you know, that, that's changed. But I think a lot of developer experience does drive adoption. And it's not driving adoption, you know, if we think about the crossing the chasm analogy, yeah, there, there are some freaks, and I, I will raise my hand and I'll say I'm one of them. You know, I used, um, I used Scala back in 2006. You know, there are freaks out there who will put up with a lot of uh, pain to go and use something that they think is better. But at some point, you have to cross into the early mainstream, and that's where the experience leads to radically faster adoption. I think that's what happened with MySQL versus Postgres. It wasn't about the features. It was about the ease of use. No, oh, I about... agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Yeah, I remember I went to, um, 
I went to the open source database summit in 2000 at the Providence Convention Center, and uh, it was MySQL was there. It was MySQL two point something or three maybe or three was right around the corner, and Postgres was there. The Postgres internals book I think had just come out, and I remember there was so much hype around MySQL. I mean, this conference was like a hundred people. I let me keep it in scope here, but uh, it's not like a Vertigo, whatever that you know that is now. But um, but yeah, I remember there was a lot of hype around MySQL. It was really a thing, and Postgres was really the database that was a lot more complicated to use. And I remember like the management and like setting up, like getting that PGCTL and like running it as the particular user. Well, MySQL just is a Debian package, right? Or whatever. And you just like install the thing and you have a running database, right? And so, yeah, I totally buy that. That's a great, it's a great comparison that you bring up there was that it really came down to just what was easy to use um, for the developers. Um, so that's a really interesting point. I wanted to uh, to chime in here um, just on the topic of um, ease of use drives experience. Uh, I'm sorry, ease, ease of, of uh, <laughs> yeah, ease of use drives usage. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you know, at, at Microsoft in my team, this is something uh, that's that's often you know pushed up down on us. We are often thinking about the integration points. You know, Microsoft owns all sorts of developer tools. C-sharp.net, Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code, GitHub, NPM, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, you know, oftentimes, you know, right before launching some new experience on serverless, some new experience on, on durable functions, Azure functions, uh, there's all this work that needs to be done on how can these get integrated at development time with your IDE, like one, you know, as painless deployment as possible, how can you debug uh, your app in production from within your IDE. Um, how do you scaffold your apps really quickly? Uh, stuff like that. And so um, I think you made a comment, Chris. Uh, and obviously, I, you know, I work at Microsoft, so I'm going to so double down on there that Microsoft is somewhat ahead <laughs> in this regard <laughs> uh, in terms of the development experience. And I agree with it. I mean, I, I, I think of, uh, I don't know, other competitors in the serverless space uh, where perhaps the tooling is more community-driven um, or third-party provided. You know, I don't think AWS necessarily has an editor or a language uh, that they fully control in the same way that, that Microsoft does. Uh, and I, I do think, at least from my interactions with users uh, on GitHub and in the community, that this is something people really like, the, the development experience. Um, I remember someone once told me that um, their experience using Azure versus AWS was that Azure felt like it was catering to the developers and that AWS was catering to uh, the system administrators. Uh, and I'm not sure if that caters at all to, to this aspect of like the development experience versus something else. Uh, and obviously, I'm really biased. Um, but yeah, I, that, absolutely something we think about a lot. I do like that description, though. It does kind of feel that way. It does feel that way a little bit, like, uh, like, um, yeah. I feel like a lot of it's like the tool, the whole like kind of tool based instead of like IDE focused. I feel like Microsoft, mm -hmm. a lot of the Azure stuff with Microsoft is very IDE focused, 
um, where I do feel like a lot of the other stuff is just like, it's, it's all like command line stuff, like tool stuff. You're going to like deploy a server. You're going to do it with like a tool and you're going to give it a thousand switches on the command line arguments to get it configured. Right. And that does feel kind of like a very systems admin -y point of view. Um, and I wonder if a lot of this is just, you know, I mean, probably a lot of it's just kind of systemic from how the stuff originated, right? I'm assuming that AWS kind of organically came out of the need of, of you know, automating and doing large-scale compute. And it probably grew from tooling into a larger system, I'm assuming. I don't know. And Microsoft's definitely had a lot of experience in building developer tools. I mean, they've been doing it for a long time. I mean... As long as I can remember programming, I mean, not really, but I mean, most of my adult years as a programmer, there was always Visual Studio. Um, the Microsoft so, stack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. You know, I think on, 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 on the first episode where we're talking about serverless, uh, we talked about how having, you know, the, the ability to, to, to obtain your serverless runtime uh, in your local development box, made development a lot easier at test time and, and just in general. Um, what else are we missing? I guess perhaps in, you know, uh, calling back to that strange loop talk on, uh, you know, inventing the future of programming. Um, what are other pain points um, in the cloud in serverless uh, where we feel like we've regressed back in a way uh, by by buying into the elastic scaling and and pay as you go model. Well, I mean, I I think I, I won't call it a regression, but I think that testing is not nearly as um, mature for a lot of the cloud-based stuff as you know it as it was for client server, you know, kind of as it was for systems that were long running. Um, I think the other thing that we're really coming to grips with as a, um, as an industry is that we do things at scale that's nearly impossible to comprehend. You know, there, there are companies mm -hmm. that, you know, most banks or most large banks have, 20,000 or more developers. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that's just an incomprehensible scale of coordination. Right. And I, I don't, I think we're, we're still to a great degree looking at the development process as a single person in a room with, you know, a bunch of sports jerseys hanging out be, behind them or, you know. Looking at you, Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But Jeez. you know, it, it, so much of programming, so much of coding, so much of development is this team thing. And you know, I've I've been doing a bunch of metrics gathering across organizations, and it seems that about fifty percent of engineering time is spent in meetings. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because the cost of coordination is so high, and we're still like massively uncoordinated. So I, I think that there, you know, a lot of what we're dealing with is really avoiding that elephant in the room, which is, yeah, you know, you might write a program that impacts 20 million people. 
it might be deployed out to, you know, hundreds or thousands of compute instances around the world hmm. at a push of a button. I, I, I don't think that we really address that scale. We're still thinking about, oh, okay, here's a computer that, or, you know, here's a program that runs on my local computer and does a thing. Right. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the way you described it, uh, where you said like, oh, there's like, you know, 20,000 people working the piece of software, you know, there, there's no individual person that can understand it all. You you deploy your little component, and then you have no idea what surprises uh, all the interactions are going to bring up to your table at 2 a.m. Uh, and, and, you know, this is something, and I'm sure this is true for all of you too, that uh, a lot of times you get new engineers in the team, you know, people fresh out of college uh, or, or high school or wherever. And, uh, you know, one of the first lessons they have to come to grips with is that, look, you're not going to get it all. I don't get it all. Uh, you, you have to rely on other people at the end of the day uh, to truly solve problems. Um, and, and, yeah, maybe I guess, I guess your point goes on to say that maybe the ways in which we think about debugging um, haven't really caught up to that notion yet that, um, you know, you, you'll get a stack trace on, on your logs and that's not necessarily going to be helpful to you. So the, what, what other kinds of metrics and information can you surface to people? Um, and that immediately makes me think of, you know, you, 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 this whole comment immediately made me think of uh, all these, you know, open telemetry, distributed tracing community uh, that's, I guess, trying to make sense out of these complex systems we're deploying. Um, I'm still necessarily convinced uh, that, that 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 fully addresses the problem, but but it seems to um, be a part of the solution. I, I think there's also an implicit assumption among almost everybody that software engineers can foresee how a system can evolve. And, you know, whether that's, you know, oh, let's estimate how long it will take to build our module or anything else. So much of what we do in computing is emergent behavior. And whether it's the emergent behavior of the systems, the emergent behavior of the teams, the emergent behavior of the intersection between the systems and the teams. And once again, I, I don't think, you know, I think that we have such a binary approach to things. It's either a bug or it's not, you know, whatever, you know, hey, we can just map everything out in JIRA. And I don't, you know, right. at some point, the scope becomes impossible to comprehend, becomes impossible to manage. And, you know, the, the only places in human history that I, I'm aware of that we've managed at the scale that we're doing computing is military operations. And, you know, maybe there are some lessons to be learned there. Maybe there are lessons to be avoided. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know where to begin to even uh, <laughs> decompose that. I want to go back to something you said earlier. Um, you said this idea of, like, you know, some developer is going to make some change or write some some code or something and and then it's going to be like widely deployed and it might have these bugs and stuff like that there's a comment you made kind of at the early earlier um and 
I guess my comment would be like, does doesn't serverless exacerbate that problem? That's my question. Does serverless exacerbate this problem? Because what you're saying now is like, instead of having one developer who's writing a program and can reason about that program top to bottom, then you say, oh, the program's too large. The developer can no longer reason about it. Now you're saying like a developer is going to make a change. Their change is going to be scoped to one function that can be called by thousands of callers, millions of callers, right? And they're going to deploy it globally. And how do you even, how do they even begin to comprehend the scope of that, right? So we've we've narrowed the focus down so the developer doesn't have to reason about larger components like directly while making like a change. But ultimately that may that could lead to a system that's more brittle or or whatnot because you don't even know who's calling you. And now instead of instead you're saying like, hey, microservices, no, we're gonna go to serverless. We're gonna have people write functions only, right? <laughs> and reason that way. It seems like serverless, like from my point of view, without developer support. Understand, and I'm not even saying just an IDE where you can run the thing locally or whatnot. I'm saying like without having a development environment that allows you to say who my callers are and who I'm calling and understand versioning. I think versioning has to become first class in an environment like this because you have to realize that at any one point in time, you have three, four, five different versions in flight and you could be called by any of them or call any of them. And, you know, programming languages that were distributed, Argus and Erlang, really, I mean, Argus is academic, but Erlang, which is like industrial, these systems had to deal with that problem on a very, very small scale on like Erlang nodes deployed in tens of numbers. And like, same for Akka, I suppose. And now you're moving to this environment where like, now we're dealing with functions. These functions, we don't know who's calling them. We don't know what versions are deployed. We don't know what versions are where. We can't stop the whole system to change a version. <laughs> We have to do rolling deploys. It's the only way to keep a system online. And so I'm just wondering if, you know, one, doesn't it make everything harder? <laughs> and two, um, don't you need a new UI? Don't we need like a new IDE for this new emergent style of programming that really addresses a social need of coordination and being able to support development organizations that are just massive amounts of people, stuff like that? I'd be curious so to hear are, 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 are you going to drop this episode on Halloween? Because that's like one of the scariest things I've ever heard anybody say. And, no, I, and, you know, I, it's, I'm saying that half jokingly, but these systems that we're building and maintaining collectively impact billions of people. You get something wrong, and the impact is actually a global impact. And yeah, you know, we we see we saw that in log for J or log for shell. You now mm -hmm. here here's a library that was maintained by a couple of people who you know were skilled and caring engineers who continue to maintain and update an open source library. And through a confluence of doing the right thing, they wound up with a system that really did the wrong thing. That was, you know, embedded on in millions and millions of servers worldwide, and we don't know where they are. We don't know how many vulnerable versions are still out there. Maybe just before I continue, for the audience who who doesn't understand the implications of like, or rather, kind of what happened and the implications, could you explain it a little bit? So that there was. Um, 
a feature or a confluence of features that were added to a common logging library. And so a logging library is used to um, write the information that developers may need to debug systems or see the behavior of systems. It you know, go, goes to what we've been talking about. And by logging certain user input, the systems could allow an attacker to execute code remotely on any system that's logging that information. So it's not the common, hey, we're attacking a front-end web server. It's, is you know, does Wells Fargo or B of A in their Zelle transfer system log out the username of the person that's doing the Zelle transfer? If I happen to modify my username, yeah, there might be 20, 30, 50 different processes and servers and subsystems and systems across the banks that might log my Zelle username out. Some of these systems might still be running COBOL. I don't know. Um, good, good callback. Uh, you know, and it, it allows an attacker to execute code remotely, discover the topology of a, um, of a bank's network or, you know, another system's network, and somehow, magically, we did not get owned by the entire world during the time that we've patched most of the Log4j instances. But I, I, I consider that to be sheer and absolute luck rather than anything else. I think everybody who perhaps had the skills to exploit it was too busy patching it on their own virtual <laughs> machines. Because uh, I remember it went on for weeks. Like, there would be like, oh, there's this variant of Log4j on Tuesday, and there's going to be another on Wednesday. And there were just tiny different ways of hitting the same essential problem. Uh, I do have a story about Log4j in, uh, from, from the serverless vendor perspective. Uh, but I first, I'm going to pin that. And I wanted to respond to your question, Chris, on um, whether or not we think serverless exacerbates this problem. Um, I guess I, I'm going to take the position that you would expect me to take, which is that it doesn't. <laughs> and uh, the Obviously. reason why I think that is that, uh, at least in what I've seen, uh, in, in how we think of serverless in, in my team, um, you know, I, I think when, when people are writing serverless apps, uh, they're oftentimes you know, the, the application serves as a container for all the callers and callees for, for these functions. And, and, and the trick is that what's going to be tying them together are going to be these external systems like some external data store, queue, some HTTP trigger, so on and so forth. And at least what I've seen is that people are thinking of serverless more so like a programming model that's very event-driven and less so like uh, a way of really decomposing services that will be deployed independently. Like what you were suggesting sounded a lot more to me like the microservice style of like, I am deploying a new service and there's going to be this unknown network of, of uh, dependencies and consumers. Whereas what I've seen in serverless is, here's my app, it is structured in an event-driven way um, and 
in fact, it is not always expected that there will be another serverless app that communicates cross app to 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 another. Uh, I'm sure, sure it's sure. happened, but it's not what I've seen. I yeah, I mean, I was taking serverless to the logical conclusion, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I was right. not talking about what people are building on serverless today. Mm-hmm. So I, I suppose my comment was motivated by two things. First, it was motivated by saying, well, I read a bunch of papers by Berkeley earlier today, which talked about the ideal kind of worlds of serverless as they imagine it. They don't talk about the developer experience at all, but what they do talk about is this idea that you, yeah, I mean, your state is a cloud provider's data systems queues, Mm -hmm. and then you basically write all of your application functions as serverless functions, and you connect them, and you today have to push things through queue and stuff but berkeley doesn't like that point they don't like that because using these queues for coordination between functions because you can't directly call another function is slow um they argue that many of the high performance data systems that we built today could never be built using this technology because things are just too slow you can't optimize you can't do hardware optimization you can't control memory management yourself so um there there's this kind of point of view of that and so they they argue for this world of you know a you know, a higher performance, more controllable thing where you can directly address functions and call things and build this system as composed functions, right? Um, and one of the counterexamples they use is this AutoCAD thing where AutoCAD like rewrote their signup process for the AutoCAD web version or something. And what they found was that the signup process like went from taking seconds to execute to went to taking 10 minutes to execute a signup for a user because it was like do something put some state in some system, wait for the trigger for the next thing. So Mm -hmm. um, I would say, you know, this is the way people are using serverless today, but I don't think it's the way people want or envision people uh, effectively using serverless in the end because it is really, really slow having to like write state every time you move between two functions or, or something like that, right? And I do think that you start to see uh, some of, maybe some of some more groundbreaking ideas in something like Unison, right? Where Unison is a programming language where like you call a function by version number and it goes and finds it with this immutable hash that addresses the function. That's kind of like a step further, right? Which is you're really thinking about programs in terms of functions. Those functions might happen to run in different places, right? So that's kind of a programming model that isn't a serverless specific thing, but gives you a vision of what serverless could look like a world where you write a program and it's really just functions. Those functions come from other places on the network. They could be written by arbitrarily different people, different teams at companies, who knows, right? Um, So, Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess the second place I'm coming from with my comment is around just experience of writing and managing Erlang systems for real, where it's not serverless programming, but you do have to deal with the problem of the fact that your callers could be different versions and your callers could have different behavior and they could call different people and you could be called by people that you don't know. And so in my mind, I see those pieces kind of coming together, right? All of the challenges of like coordinating in a distributed system when things are constantly dynamic and changing with the idea that the development scope is kind of reduced to the scope of a function. And I don't know, that function could be a microservice or it could be left pad. I don't know, right? <laughs> I mean, take your pick. <laughs> right. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the people aren't writing things like that today, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that they won't in the future. Right. Um, I, I have a anecdote, um, uh, regarding writing state to some external system as a transition between functions, um, a piece of software at a, at a recent employer um, had um, uh, had a customer interacting workflows and also um, staff interacting workflows that um, involved calling um, at times, let's call them three to 10 functions. And <clears throat> the system was designed um, to use a CQRS style programming pattern and the transition between each step in the CQRS um, in this implementation involved writing the intermediate state um, into a database system. Um, and the fastest that we could get those uh, transactions to go was on the order of 10 to 15 milliseconds. So if you had a burst of activity where you really wanted to process um, tens of thousands of events in a very, very short period of time, let's say 10 seconds would be ideal, um, that you literally couldn't process them that fast because there was this step in the middle that each function's transition had a built-in delay of at least like 12 to 13 milliseconds. Like, and, and there was no way around that aside from redesigning the entire application. Yeah, um, yeah, that's not good. Um... The having to write the intermediate state is 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 not ideal. Um, it's really it's really not ideal. Um, I think the serverless answer to that is if you look at you know all of those demo apps and academic apps that have been written like X Camera and stuff like that. The serverless answer to that is you do is you you if you need to process a lot of events you do it in parallel, right? You just say well the cloud computer cloud computing environment can give me a bajillion function executions concurrently. And so I do them all concurrently, right? Um, so that you try to basically parallelize so you don't see the latency as much, right? But that's a problem as soon as you have to do something that's sequential. Obviously, if you have to do anything like assign sequence numbers that are in sequence, uh, you're killed, right? Because you can't do it in parallel. Suddenly you have to, I mean, unless you do leases or whatever, there's a million techniques you can do to assign numbers uh, um, differently or to assign sequence numbers differently or something like that. Um, but if you really need like a, a total order of execution, um, you know, you, you just have to pay that. And if that workflow is doing like three or four things where you're going to have to read from Kafka, do some work, write back to Kafka, and the next code reads from Kafka, writes back. I mean, that kind of stuff is is just not ideal. And I imagine that cloud providers realize this. Like, I mean, I feel like it feels like it's obvious that the next step you have to take is you have to make it so that there's like a predefined set of patterns. So you say, I'm chaining functions with a queue, and the runtime optimizes it, right? Like that's the natural progression of where that needs to go. Um, but then that's even more lock-in, right? If you rely on provider X's, whatever, Kafka, implicit Kafka 
serverless message function queue thingy. David, David is yeah. laughing at me. He's just, laughing at me. Well, I'm just laughing because I, I, I don't know if this was like a, uh, if, if you were trying to get me to comment on the, the durable function patterns. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, I think, um, you know, so I work for this team, durable functions, you know, it's, it's work, serverless workflows. Uh, and yeah, I mean, one of the things we have is our uh, particular application patterns uh, like, you know, fan out, fanning in, um, or sequential composition of functions. Um, but I think some of these have some internal optimizations uh, that that may make the, 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 the cost of them uh, cheaper than they would otherwise be if you were natively doing them in with standard serverless constructs. Uh, but it's certainly not optimized to the point that you were implying. Uh, but we have had, you know, several conversations about, um, you know, if you know the structure of the program, if you know this is sequential computation, this is parallel, you know, can you minimize the data copies? Can you exploit locality to, to make things go faster? Um, I think it ultimately depends on, uh, you know, how much your programming language of choice allows you to make this analysis in the first place. Like if you... Like if you're using a purely declarative language, I'm sure it's fairly straightforward to determine, um, you know, like oh, your program is going to have this shape, therefore uh, this is the best way to allocate resources to you to to avoid paying the cost of serialization. Uh, but if you're writing like you know some very dynamic JavaScript program, uh, I guess you will need annotations to help guide uh, whatever internal optimizer. Uh, Gonna let you do that. Um, gosh, there was something else I wanted to say. I wasn't trying to set you up for that. I actually wasn't even thinking about it when I was saying those things. I was really in my head. I was envisioning, like, uh, in my head, I was envisioning like an AWS Lambda thing where, like, you had mm -hmm. a drop down or something. You say like connect to this Lambda, and okay. it just like connected and like automatically sent the data. I, you, you brought up some interesting things. I didn't even think about serialization, and and we all know that's where a ton of time is killed and in at least many of the CLR things I worked on, uh, mm -hmm. the runtime serialization because of the reflection costs were just astronomical. And um, you wanted to avoid those penalties. And yeah, I mean, if you're writing your, if every time you execute a function, you're like writing your state to a function and then like reading it back. I mean, that's, that's a lot of compute time that's being killed. Um, there's probably some like meta sustainability point here that we probably could make too about like, is serverless the best use of power <laughs> in the data center? Like, wouldn't servers be cheaper to just, or like, because if you just had a server and had, you know, a thing in a loop, a while loop, like reading and writing requests, uh, are you burning so much time just reading and writing things from queues to get them across computers to, to make the programming model easier? I, I mean, I don't know, but, um. I don't know if anybody's. I, I sure somebody in academic land has looked at at the cost of, of writing something as serverless versus writing it a different way, and those trade offs. Well, the, uh, the 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 Beam the Erlang virtual machine um, has no problem with a million processes sitting idle nearly all the time, and and that's based on work that is half a decade old. Um, so. So one million is now a small number, or at least it should be. Um, so uh, it, it does make me wonder, um, 
you know, rather than the the practice of having serverless containers winking in and out of existence and having to pay the the high startup cost every every single time you need to reinstantiate the container state, um, that um, we just get better at um, at putting those dormant uh, dormant in RAM. Like where where's the which one ends up being better in the long run um, when you take um, energy consumption in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I think there's like an intersection of issues here and I, I, you know, one of them is Erlang has a great serialization model. Java does not. Because, you know, the, the Erlang data structures are relatively simple. I mean, they're, they're very lisp like in their, you know, in their, the way that they can be expressed, which means that the developer doesn't have to do the serialization. The serialization is done by the system. So, you know, sending a message between two Erlang processes, whether that's whether they're executing in the same address space or on different, you know, in different address spaces or across systems, the, the developer isn't thinking about the serialization process. But being able to marshal and unmarshal I mean, that is damn expensive, both human work and computationally. So having data structures that lend themselves to serialization, and look, this is, I think, one of the reasons that JavaScript and JSON have taken off. Yeah, it, it's there's a nice serialization model that's aligned with the programming model. The two are not different. But there's, yeah. there's another point here, which is that computers and our programming languages and our programming models evolved when computers had very limited resources and humans were the bottleneck. So we forced humans to think like computers. And, you know, there, there are a couple of examples where we haven't forced that, where we've allowed humans to think like humans. One of them is one of my favorites, which is spreadsheets. You know, we, we allow humans to express things in a much more human way. Um, relational databases, I think, are another example where you have an abstract model of the data. And yeah, you give some hints. I mean, index this column. Okay, I as a developer am gonna give a hint to the database as to what to do. But by and large, the databases do the right thing with incredibly complex and large set manipulation. I, you know, we're, we're talking about serverless, but we're also talking about this human process of marshalling and unmarshalling data, the human process of knowing where to put the data when you've marshaled it, where to get the data when you're unmarshalling it. Why, why aren't the computers doing these things? And I'll, yeah. I'll, by, way, by way, I'll go with, you know, both Rust and Scala. Neither language would have been possible in the 90s because there wasn't enough memory in computers to be able to hold the graphs that were necessary to be able to do the type checking that give the power to both languages. You know, the borrow checker would have been absolutely impossible in the 90s or, you know, uh, beyond a couple of toy programs. Why aren't we applying this, okay, we have this, you know, vast compute cycles, vast number of cores, vast amounts of RAM, why are we still forcing developers to think like the machine? 
I, I just want to say I think it's funny because we've made a full return to the uh, strange look talk of stop writing dead progress, which is more or less exactly about the same topic. So yeah, we awesome. all really need to watch the talk now. Uh, sure. I, I do. Be, before we dive into that or not, uh, you did make a comment on JSON and JavaScript uh, and, and, you know, the why it's taken off. And, and I agree. I, I, I am, however, uh, I must, <laughs> you know, make an obligatory uh, complaint about how difficult it is to uh, differentiate uh, timestamps from regular strings in JSON. It, you have no idea how much time I spent uh, trying to sort that out when, uh, you know, sending data back and forth in, in serverless, uh, you know, like someone sends, sends you a date, a new date dot to JSON, and you get it, you, you know, you get your JSON string, and it's like, was this a date or was this a string? Who knows? Um, anyways, just my obligatory complaint. Um, I love, I, I thought all the things you said, DBB, were, were fantastic. Um, Obviously, spreadsheets and databases are my two favorites um, as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, so maybe we can maybe we can take this a different direction then based on th this comment you said. Uh, maybe we can go in the direction of what do we think, like, if we could... So I, I don't really think this is kind of like a serverless question really specifically anymore. I think serv like serverless is kind of like this pathological uh, path that microservices could go in where you really just reduce the complexity as far as possible, right? So like, I think the move from monolith to microservices is more important because it's this decomposition into functionality, which is the essential bit, which solves the social challenges. And so um, serverless is kind of like a pathological following that all the way, um, separating things out as much as possible. And so maybe the essential thing, and maybe we can just use like 15 minutes or so before we wrap up to talk through this is, is um, if we were to imagine what a IDE in programming language environment and language or model would look like for cloud computing, like what would, what would be the things that we would want the compiler or whatever to take care of? And how would we want to express our programs? Like, what would it work, look like in this ideal world? And I think that all of us are going to say different things. So I think there's, a, I think it'll make it fun. I immediately think that I want to make it trivial to attach to a running process and see what what's running life. And uh, it, you know, this is something that that, that I, I know I can do today. You know, in, in Azure Functions, you know, what I work on. Uh, but, but it requires some expertise to this kind of thing of like, what is actually running in the cloud right now? And can I attach to it and like modify it as it goes? Or just look at the, slow it down just so I can look at what data is flowing. Um, oftentimes the easier equivalent is looking at your traces, which does allow you to have this sense of like stopping time. And if you're tracing the right things, you can, you can look at the runtime data. Um, but that requires foresight. So my immediate thing is uh, the ability to attach to running programs and just see what, what is flowing through, through your code. There's a lot more thoughts, but just off the cuff. So I, I guess I'd like to flip programming on its head 
and say that 90% of what developers do is describe transforms. Yes. And if, you know, we actually saw, uh, I'll, I'll call XSLT a failure because XSLT had to become a Turing complete language because it didn't allow escaping out of the transform grammar. And occasionally you have to escape out. But I'd really like to see 90 to 95% of the work that we do be a description of transforms, be a description of the uh, permissions, access control, that sort of thing that are enforced by another layer in the system. And, you know, that becomes transform, move to other system, transform, move to other system. And whether those systems are, you know, co-resident in the same address space, those systems are co-resident on the same machine, that becomes a scheduling thing. And look, we're, we're pretty good at building schedulers for, for gross processes. Why not schedulers for simpler processes? And we even see some of that with Go routines. We're able to schedule, you know, the, the developer doesn't think about scheduling or async and Go the way that they do in JavaScript or um, in Rust. So I, I think that if we took a, what are the transforms, what are the access control roles, and turn those into the major things that programmers are manipulating, and then with annotations or other metadata about how how the execution takes place, I think that, that that might be a different way of approaching things. And therefore, we could start looking at data flow across services or serverless functions or whatever. But the functions move back to the um, uh, functional programming ideal of, you know, it, they're effectively stateless. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is true that the transform thing is so true, right? Like most people are just like reading and writing to a database or like reading from a database, sending it to an RPC call, receiving some data, getting some other data out of a database. Um, it's true. Um, I don't know why, like, why has no one done this yet? Why hasn't somebody just written a language that like compiles the serverless and it just, or compiles to microservices or something. And it's really just like you write the data transformations um something like that i mean i'm not saying industrially but even academically I, I mean i'm sure there's stuff that does this but um as like an alternative to a cloud provider right like why like why do i need to go to a console and a cloud provider and like scroll through my storage and pick my thing and then copy and paste a bunch of like java code and like sort of write this thing like why can't i just say like do this thing here and do that thing there and connect it. And it does all the RPC plumbing and everything for me. And um, one of the, one of the, one of the ideas that I have is wondering like, do the reasons that some of these things don't exist come from the fact that we, we don't have ways of expressing like other operational things about the system. For instance, like the versioning thing I brought up, I think that any programming language that is going to succeed has to deal with the fact that the IDE needs to tell you, you're making a breaking change. And if you do a rolling deploy, you're going to hit some nodes where you're sending data that's going to cause exceptions. I think that's a very important thing. Um, dealing with dis distribution first class. I think another thing that's probably important that probably isn't talked about is there probably needs to be some notion of multi-tenancy or something like this. Like real world companies have to keep data separate and ensure that data doesn't flow together. And 
no programming languages that I know of have a way of saying this thing's deployed in the database or whatever. And like, I need to like ensure that this thing is deployed so that this data and that data is not on the same. And this is especially to a GDPR. I'm surprised that there hasn't been European PL research. I mean, I know there's been some about like taint tracking and stuff to see who can see what, but I, I, I would love to see, is there a programming language that like, is designed with GDPR, like from top down, like thinking about all of that privacy stuff and data management. And that's kind of like related to multi-tenancy as well. Um, so I feel like there's a lot of these operational things that we probably need a way to express in our programs because really that is business logic, right? Like that is a part of the core business logic. Um, so I'd, I'd like to see a lot more people writing declarative programs like that. And a lot fewer people writing programs that read and write JSON to like Cassandra or whatever, MongoDB. I don't know. Uh, so anyway, Scott, right, did you have so, any, oh, well, well, I'll let DPP comment and then we'll go to Scott. Now, I'll, I'll just say, you know, may, maybe we should sit down and make a list of what are the 20 different dimensions that we have to think about large scale systems on and build something around that. Anyway, sorry, Scott, sorry for cutting you off. Oh, no, it's fine. That's a, yeah. I, I mean, this is like a thought exercise that we could continue further on, like coming up with uh, what we think are the important dimensions and what a programming language should and should not think about. Uh, my comment goes back to David Husto's wish of being able to attach debuggers or inspector thingies um, onto remote running programs. Um, before wishing for that kind of universe, um, it, it just to go back to, to Erlang, since I've, I've been using it for um, a little while, like 1999 is the first time a I started while. using it. Uh, <laughs> that um, with all of the concurrency um, happening inside of, of an Erlang VM, um, it just as an example, uh, using the, the gen server call, which is one of the OTP standard ways of, of making synchronous Synchronous uh, message passing patterns to to another act, uh, to another process um, that there's a default timeout there of five seconds and of course yes you can override it with adding a, another uh, argument to to the to the to the call but there's usually these timeouts involved that if you if you end up stopping uh, the receiving process then the um, uh, for for doing a, uh, something debugging wise. And inspecting the state, you're operating at human speed rather than computer speed. And what would normally be a system that would be working without timeouts, suddenly you're causing timeouts to potentially cascade through the rest of the system. And it happens really quickly um, if you pick the wrong uh, process to pause. Um, and so it's good to be able to attach those things, but like the, the, the ongoing effects of that can be pretty terrible. Um, and so Another uh, one way around that is, um, I think um, you had also mentioned much earlier, um, uh, open telemetry and related things for, for observing the state of the system and communication patterns and whatnot. That's really useful in that you don't have to disrupt the communication pattern to see what, it, to see what is happening on a, on a system-wide scale. But then it doesn't give you the, the immediacy of attaching to a process and inspecting its state. Um, but attaching to the process and inspecting its state is probably going to perturb it, the timing of things, and so you don't want to do that either. Maybe you also want to have the option of recording our serverless functions executions 
in the same way that the RR debugger or something like that. It, it, technology is now possible to record every single memory access done by a process and make it a reasonably small hunk of thing that you can stash aside. Um, and if you need to access it, to, to access it again, decompress it, and replay in exactly the same deterministic order um, uh, again, um, which is a really cool um, uh, debugging thing that maybe would help improve your serverless distributed debugging future universe, maybe? Yeah, I want to comment on that. Um, I worked on deterministic replay. I, I worked on a system at Microsoft. Uh, uh, Ambrosia with a bunch of people. I, I did a very small piece of it, but um, where we we did some work on that whole system is based on deterministic replay. We used it to build a, a arbitrary Node.js deterministic replay system, so you could like replay a web request and do sort of time travel debugging. Um, so that stuff I think is super important. I imagine in a, a new UI kind of IDE thing for these types of programs, you would have a way to do deterministic replay with time travel debugging. So you could like go like, I want to go back to when the request comes into service A and I want to like go all the way up to like debugging it on service C. So a cross distributed deterministic replay thing for debugging is important. But as you mentioned, the key point is timeouts, right? So I have people that I work with now who debug a request going from service A to service C. And as soon as you slow something down to look at one thing, Cascading timeouts fire everywhere. So I think the other key component that would have to be tied in with this debugger is the ability to virtualize timeouts, right? So that you can slow the execution down and speed it up, but it's done with some sort of virtual time thing. So you never have to worry about perturbing the system in a way where the execution is different under debugging. And I think that's a huge challenge that people just deal with today with gRPC. They just say, okay, this thing's going to time out, so I'll stop it here. Then I'll restart the thing and I'll stop it at the next point. And I know that everything after that will time out, right? And so you just kind of incrementally build up to it. And so I think that all of those things that you mentioned really address, like if we were to build this imagined new programming language, I think that between you and David, you hit on all of these things that you would need for the complete debugging story. You need like the remote inspection, the virtualized time, the deterministic replay, record and replay, portable. So you can like come up with a failure or come up with a debugger and send it to somebody say replay this thing and check this out right like you want portable counter examples all of this stuff and to make that work at the large scale you need to version you need to version your programs because your debugger can only replay based on like all of the same versions of all the same dependencies and everything and so I, you know, we're starting to see all these things come together. It's kind of, I mean, like the ideas that we're coming up with, how they all interplay and they kind of get to this central thing, which is this improved development experience with this kind of distributed deployment where you don't have to like manually write RPC calls with stubs from gRPC. Uh, yeah, but anyway. Um, okay, so... Um, I guess we should wrap up. We've been talking for a while. So I, I'll let everybody kind of just say, maybe have some final comments, kind of speak to any, any final things they want to say. Well, I, I, I guess I'll say, um, you know, I, I guess obviously like one of the, the, the key themes here has been, you know, we're developing all these things for people to be productive. And oftentimes the, the maintenance, operational and debugging aspects of the story are, Thought of afterwards, and I guess this final thought experiment you proposed was like, what if we put those, you know, 
head first in the programming language design or experience design. And in fact, you know, we we see how that cascades into how feature development looks like. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think that's just culturally something that's really difficult to change about our industry. Like we want, uh, you know, we're rewarded, you know, as an industry to get people to do things, not always to get people to maintain those those things they've built. And so, um, yeah, I guess just 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 calling that out and and saying that that uh, you know progress is being made, obviously, to make make systems more interactive, make them uh, more tangible and less you know like punching cards on an old computer that I'm too young to have ever <laughs> seen. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just takes time to get people to care, I guess. Don't worry, your kids will be like, God, you remember those days we used to have to like carve out those handcrafted <laughs> RPCs from ERP stubs and have to deserialize the data yourself? Man, those people were living in the past, man. <laughs> They'll all be in the metaverse, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right, cool. Well, thanks to everybody for joining, David, DPP, and, and Scott. Um, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.